Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Maybe it's just because Vampire is a really fucking bad accountant. Welcome to another episode of Dungeon Deep Dive. Every time that beat drops, I feel myself transform into a god. Yeah, we were all just dancing to that, uh, if you can imagine. I was, well, I was looking confusedly at Tully, because he kept looking at me, as if I was going to be introducing the show. And then all That's of a sudden, it starts to ease down, and he leans over to the microphone, and I'm like, Tully, what are you doing? And then he, he leans in, I see, see him, I, take, I see him take a breath in, and I'm like, Tully, you're not, Tully, you're well, you're not. You've been indicating the entire oh, intro. And I... then all of a fucking sudden, what comes out of his mouth? But the fucking intro. Anyway, I'm Lachlan Hoy. Welcome to Dungeon Deep Dive. A fantasy podcast of what-ifs, how-tos, and whys. Are we just sticking with that? Is I that think... just what we're doing now? Well, I mean, you made fun of the last one, and I, I think this one kind of works. Well, I, I made do fun like of... our tagline, we do the research, so you don't have to. Okay, I, I mean, I, I also will say, we made fun of this one too, we just didn't record it because the thing screwed up but i assure you we did have a version of the mermaid episode where tully said that the first time and we all laughed we did we did um in like a fun friendly way but it was still funny no mine was malicious and hurtful oh never mind i speak for myself i guess then <laughs> yeah Always speak for yourself. it's fair it's I, I cried a little <laughs> but when aren't you crying tully that's when fair aren't you so today we're going to talk about vampires. Oh, by the way, uh, Tolly and Danae are here. Say hi, guys. Oh, hi. Hi there. Um, so we're going to talk about vampires this week. Um, vampires are fun. I mean, everybody knows vampires. That is a given. Uh, I don't think we need to introduce what they are, uh, because they they're just... They do the suck stuff. Yes, they do the suck. Um... <laughs> Mood. <laughs> anyway, so... Um... Well, why don't we jump right into it? Yeah, so I'm going to kick us off this week, um, because I decided to give myself far too broad of a philosophical question, and really just kind of ask, why are we scared of these silly guys anyway? I mean, we got, we got these we got these fellas, right? And they're mostly just kind of some folks, and they drink some blood. And it's like, okay, I get it sounds unpleasant, but I've had a raw steak in my day. Does I mean, that make me a monster? I love a, a black pudding. Exactly, exactly. We drink blood all the time. They're going to let me do a couple of things. Um, so the reasons that we're scared that we've that like societies have kind of been scared of vampires historically because vampire myths come from pretty much every culture in some variation. I mean, the word itself is an 18th century, likely Slavic word um, of surprisingly confusing origin um but the concept i mean is uh, dates back as far as really 
stories. Oh, too. yeah. The, there's these all sorts of blood-sucking creatures mm. um, that are sort of thought to be some of the origins of vampires crop up on every continent in just about every society. It's nuts. Yeah, no, it's 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 insane. Um, a lot of the a lot of the kind of ideas around vampires that we're used to today come from a couple of places. Uh, mostly uh, like the Christian myths in the medieval era and uh, the kind of myths that were in the regions that the Christian myths were also in. Um, uh, so that includes like, so we're talking like the old English kind of revenant, which is like a vengeful spirit uh, returned mm-hmm. from the dead. Um, we're talking like the Norse dro- Draugr, if, um, if, any, if anyone's yeah. played some Skyrim, yeah. yeah. Um, which again, is just like, like a skeleton zombie kind of thing. Um, the number of times I shit myself walking around a corner. <laughs> I walked past all these coffins and I was like, some fucker's gonna spring out of one of them, I know. That's always like the moment right after you stop looking as well. Yes, exactly. And then you hear that, oh, <laughs> you, you're like, fuck. Um, but there was even, um, I could only find one recorded, but there was even an old uh, 16th century um, a Jewish uh, fable regarding a vampire. Um, it was about like someone who returned from the dead to like massacre people because their, I believe their burial wasn't done correctly. Yeah. Um, it's just an interesting note. It doesn't yeah. come a lot, come up a lot in like um, Semitic mythology. I mean, there um, is that one. There's Sorry. Lilith, I believe, is a, a demon or a devil that is known to be tied to a lot of vampire myths as well, mm. um, specifically in um, Jewish tradition. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, I didn't, I didn't actually come across that. <laughs> so, uh, so the myths kind of come from all over the world. Uh, while those are the ones that kind of influence our modern vampire mythos, um, because uh, Western imperialists crushed other cultures and stole all their stories, so those are and, the ones that we have left. And history is written by the winners. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but similar myths that, if not influential necessarily on the modern myth definitely show that this is kind of a fascination of of humans in general this is not anything that's specific to one culture um so a couple of examples um is one of them is the ensemboso uh i don't know how to pronounce this i'm very sorry for for not knowing how to pronounce this which is um a myth attributed to the ashanti people of west africa which is kind of a vampire it's like uh, this person they're kind of like skeletal looking um, they have iron teeth, they're bloodshot, they hide in trees, and uh, they get around uh, by turning into fireflies, which I thought was a fun parallel with the um, vampires turning into bats thing. Mm. That's cute as fuck. Yeah. Um, another, there's a, uh, uh, the legends around the Suikoyant, come, uh, or another kind of vampire variant from the Caribbean. Uh, which was this essentially just like an old woman during the day who uh, at night just ripped her skin off, turned into a ball of fire, and uh, flew in th- and flew into your house through any small gaps in the walls where it proceeded to suck your blood. Oh, cool! That's oh, and that's in um. I love when fire sucks my blood. Yeah, <laughs> and that's well, in like fire. Central America, right? No, that's uh, so that, that, that the sequent comes um, mostly from the Caribbean, but it's interesting because it's thought to likely be um, a kind of conglomeration of a few different mythoses. 
because um, I mean, they're considered to be a Caribbean jumbi, which is essentially just like an evil spirit. Um, but it's the overlap with um, like European vampire myths and with um, some like African um, mythology uh, leads uh, historians to believe that it was actually kind of like this mixing on of these of these legends uh, by through like the slave trade and stuff that was happening um, in the region around these times. Oh, um, there you go. Like having um, uh, slaves from Africa and having uh, European slave traders all meeting with um, like Caribbean sailors kind of results in this in this um, sun vampire, I guess. A vampire that becomes the sun. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, so these stories kind of come from everywhere, but I think the more interesting thing is why. So just before you jump into why, can I run through my favorite of these sort of other vampire myths? Which one's that? Uh, the self-segmenter. Ah, yes. Um, so this is the Mananunga. Yeah. Um, which is from... Uh, where is it? This is in the Philippines. Um, so Visayan. Uh, basically, it means self-segmenter. Um, so this is from Borneo. Uh, is the the Mananangal, which is the self-segmenter. Basically, it is a, it takes the form of an attractive girl by day, and then at night develops wings and a long, hollow, thread-like tongue, and then it rips itself off the body. It segments its upper torso off to fly into the night with bat-like wings and just trails its insides behind it. Oh, good. That's how you catch disease. That's how I feel whenever I have to, like, walk home from the train station at night, and I'm just, like, (laughs) dragging myself, my innards behind me down the street. Um, But yeah, yeah, so these these kind of stories come from everywhere. Um, There's almost no culture that doesn't have some variant of a ghost or a spirit or a demon or something that eats your blood or your life force or your vital essence mm. um your chi um is what they would eat is what they would eat uh, according to the mythos in like china and stuff things like that so the fear seems to in its early stages uh have stemmed mostly from just kind of like the fear of being killed it's this like representation of this of the way that culture dealt with that um, so for, cause for a long time, um, the main concern seems to be with, yeah, with like being attacked by a vampire, which it will see shift as kind of history goes forward. Um, so for instance, uh, people believe that it would be, uh, kind of not knowing really anything about like death or decomposition, which was a, which is a fairly uh, significantly complicated process. Hmm. Um, they would... Uh, potentially be like unearthing bodies and stuff in ancient times that had like blood pooling around their faces and like potentially oozing out of um, orifices and stuff like bodies left in the right conditions can have like blood pooling and oozing out of their like noses and mouth which while to us today would seem like a bizarre effect of decomposition to a person in the I don't know like 600s Probably looks like that person got up out of their grave, went and drank some blood, and went to go kick it back at home, which is a pretty scary thing. Um, uh, this 
being uh, at least one of the reasons for the myth existing is uh, further supported by some of the other effects of decomposition, like um, your skin titans. Which... I'll talk a little bit more about that later, actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing about it, and the thing that makes it very clearly uh, more about protection from vampires is the kind of emphasis of most of these myths were more, at this time, in kind of like the ancient world, were more about preventing vampires than about, like, stopping vampires, or what vampires could do, necessarily. Mm. Um, so, for instance, um, uh, especially in, like, Slavic countries, um, uh, but kind of a little bit universally, um, cultures uh, would be, would, like, stake the hearts of, um, of corpses to ensure that they couldn't come back, mm. kind of showing this... Um, this this fear of kind of demonstrating their like fear of being killed that is like so ingrained in them that they would that they feel the need to like destroy essential organs of like their own deceased loved ones which i imagine would probably be a, a, a pretty heart-wrenching process to go through hmm. do you know a really interesting fact if you like stake a, what you think's a vampire through the chest though is when, when you're, like, decomposing, um, you're swollen from all the, the gases, and basically staking it can force the gases out through your vocal cords, which elicits this kind of groaning sound. Yeah. Uh, which is horrifying. Yeah, uh, I was reading also that they think that that was some of the, probably some of the reason that they would look at specific bodies as well, was if, like, the coffin made a noise uh, while it was sealed from, like, an escaping gas or something. Mm. Um, people were just like, oh, it's ghosts, they're going to eat us. Just immediately. Yeah, it's wild. Um, the, yeah, so, it, it, and they really lent into it, in um, into this, like, destruction of the body thing in uh, Romania, specifically. Um, there have been bodies in Romania that have been found with, uh, like, steel and iron needles through their hearts and, um, like, stakes through their legs to stop like the bodies from running when they when they came back mm. uh, bits of metal over their eyes uh, a lot of these superstitions yeah bricks in their bricks mouth in, yeah uh, um, a body that uh, like forced into their mouth mm. and like breaking the jaw yeah. um once a day once a day mm. yeah all of these things that are about like ensuring that kind of seeing this thing as a fear that you couldn't deal with on your own and just being like well, if we can stop it from ever coming, then that's the best we can do. Um, fun bit of uh, of entomology, entomology, etymology. Fun bit of etymology uh, is the phrase "turning over in their grave." Oh yeah. Um, originally did not refer to like spinning in their grave as we often get to know it as. Oh, it, I think was, I know what you're about to say. The the vampire myth was that um, they would try and burrow out of their grave, so a lot of bodies were buried upside down, facing the earth. So they couldn't dig back out. So yeah. they couldn't dig back out, so they'd get a mouthful of dirt if they tried to eat in. Um, and so restless spirits were known to turn in their grave, which is to turn around and to then to escape. escape. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of these things, like using iron nails to um, to make sure they were facing down. Um, this was also helped by, and you might talk about this as well, if, if a body is buried face up, the face will go quite pallid and drained blood. They're facing, going face down, they'll get very red and kind of, oh. because all the blood drains. So to... that would like exaggerate those like pooling mm. kind of. So it then looks like if they're facing down, they look more decomposed. They look less vampiric. Oh, I see. Interesting. Mm. 
Um, yeah, so it's the the kind of overlap with the because you see it a lot in these um, in these kind of prevention myths because um, a lot of them re revolve around destroying the body, but some of them revolve around kind of like the Greek idea of like paying the toll at the river sticks mm. with like because um, you'll see there are lots of cultures again like in Romania with the bits of metal over their eyes. Um, there are also a bunch of places that would put like coins in mouths and over eyes and all sorts of stuff that um, could either be, I mean, a derivative of that, like, Greek or related traditions, or just, I don't know, just be a weird thing that people like to do sometimes. Um, so that was an interesting thought. Um, so, for a long time, that's kind of what vampires were. But then, we hit the 18th century, and things get wacky in the Enlightenment, as they as so they often do. do. Um, so in the Enlightenment, uh, for... Uh, real quick for those of those people that don't know, it was kind of the time where like European and largely English society, um, oh no, I guess kind of European in general society shifted away from like spiritual explanations for things towards uh, scientific explanation of things. It's mm -hmm. called like the age of reason. It's kind of the development of um, the of, of modern scientific study. Yeah, um, all of that science that we threw away before the Middle Ages, um, we decided we'd, we'd we decided to take to pick it back up. It. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so around this time, kind of cultural attitudes are really changing. Um, the Enlightenment is seeing people uh, really focus more on themselves as an individual rather than like a larger community. I mean, we're dealing with um, stuff like uh, the like the social contract, which was a, a theory pioneered by the likes of like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and stuff, which saw society not as something governed from on high but instead created by the people who then imbue power in authority. Mm. So people felt like people were more and more feeling like they had rights to be violated um, by kind of a governing structure. Because up until this point, like the main fear really was, and that's kind of why it was seems to be the focus for the vampire stories, was just around mortality, like our own individual mortality and the, the threat of something coming and like striking us down be that disease or war or whatever and that's why mm -hmm. like they were so focused on like stopping vampires and stuff uh, stopping them from even coming about whereas like now we live in this world where like the the western world has so much given up its identity it's like cultural identity in favor of like the protection of a often imperialist state um mm -hmm. this like really strong uh, militaristic empire. Um, and you kind of see the shift away from being scared of vampires killing us and towards vampires oppressing us mm. in the 18th century. Um, Voltaire in his uh, Dictionary Philosophique uh, uh, was quoted as saying that um, vampires, which were originally, yeah, about like killing people, uh, these like undead things, uh, were now, they, were now stock jobbers, brokers, and men of business who sucked the blood of people in broad daylight. They were not dead, though corrupted. These true suckers lived not in cemeteries, but in very agreeable palaces, uh, kind of marking the shift towards uh, the greatest fear of society being this, like, oppressive force that they created. And then, that kind of then leads into, like, the modern attitude, which sort of shifts away from, again, that after, like, the imperial forces of 
largely kind of taken over because now the fear of vampires is I would at least from my experience would say is probably more about the loss of humanity that comes from that power kind of a, a reflection of the progress of society from a place where we were scared of vampires killing us to a world where we're so safe that we're scared we became the vampires hmm an interesting transition. Yeah, so it's really just, so to kind of like zero in on it, the main thing that you have to remember is that like these fears are kind of inherent to everything, and they, to every culture, and they're just like this desperate attempt to explain like these natural phenomena that were terrifying at the time to a, a society that just didn't have the tools to understand it in a simple way like we do. Yeah. Um, and it really kind of, the fears around them are really just the concern of whatever the, like, working class is. And as far as putting this where we are, I mean, we talked in domestication about the timeline of where exactly you want to sit it as far as real-world timeline versus fantasy timeline. Mm. Um, but generally in these games, we've got the concept of private property. We, yeah. We tend to have that, which means that that's when the, the vampire myth started to shift into this fear of the alien, fear of, fear of other people and Well, not even necessarily. Invasion. It was more a fear of the people in charge secretly being vampires. It was kind of like... Because you've got to remember, this, is, this was like the time of the French Revolution. Mm. So it's basically just like... The, literally, vampires just kind of became the thing that they revolted against in France. Like, that's what the mythos shifted to. Yeah. Um, so that's probably more what you'd be dealing with around this time, because they would have, like, property rights. Um, but yeah, just kind of think about what the fears would have been before that point as well, and kind of integrate those into, like, the foundation of the... Of the vampires. Of the vampire myth. And then it creates this kind of, like, living mythology. Yeah. I like that. I think living mythology is a really nice term to use, mm. because... Like anything, um, I think myths in particular do adapt to the, the current worldview, and and as you say, like the, the current fears that people have, and they will change as knowledge progresses. Yeah, well, and that's that's a, that's another thing. You mentioned worldview, like these things were part of. You have to remember, part of religious myths. Mm. They represented a desire not to come up with parables so much, which is how we often see these stories but more to create, like, a comprehensive, like, metaphysical framework to understand a world that this that the society may not in any other way. Um, it's more about understanding, more about, like, fear than it is about, I guess, like, morality or violence or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, going on from, I guess, the, the fears of the working class too, I think another thing to consider when talking about vampires is our overarching fear as a species of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, like, yeah, as, as you sort of mentioned, like, all mythological creatures and monsters have to have this kind of root fear or, or origin that they've sprung from. And many times, it's really quite a reasonable fear back in the day, like, spiders and snakes back in the day would mean certain death if you were bitten, or lightning could mean uncontrollable fire. For humans, the most fearsome and uncontrollable thing has always been death, mm. because we know unerringly that death is is coming for us, that we will die one day. 
Mm. And despite the efforts of religion, of science, of folklore, we do not know unknowingly what will happen to us after we die. And the thought that corpses could return to harm the living was absolutely terrifying. Um, and as you said, like those kind of vampires were known as revenants because they returned to, to get you, basically. Uh, you did mention decomposition, and a lot of my research this week covers how supernatural creatures can derive from human illness and how our, our fear of being sick and of dying really influences uh, vampires in particular. Mm. Because if you think about it, um, a lot of the time they are portrayed as sort of gaunt and pale and sickly looking, you know, dark sunken eyes. And, you know, sometimes that sort of exacerbated to become quite sexy. Hello, Leslie Cohen. <laughs> But there is no illness that can make you sparkle. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's not an illness, Kelly. That's just a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so decomposition. There's a, there's a lot of things to do with decomposition, as Lachlan touched on uh, really well, that would make people think back in the day, what? Sorry, I just had the thought that... Um, because that's... Because make Edward Cullen's skin sparkling, right? That's a, that's a feature. That's a benefit. It, I love the implication that that's like a defense mechanism, that, <laughs> yeah. that sparkling in the sunlight is some protection. Love that though. He's just like refracting it back off himself so it can actually touch him. Sunlight is actually deadly, but yeah. they just developed a mirrored skin. Yeah, that's it. Um, so when someone dies, right, your corpse will decompose, and here are some things that can happen to your corpse that would make people back in the day think, oh, wow, it's a lot. So uh, your skin and your gums will lose all your fluid and they will contract. This will expose the roots of your hair, the roots of your nails and even any teeth that were previously concealed in your jaw. So it looks like you're even growing extra teeth. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this also gives the illusion that your hair and your nails and your teeth are growing. Yeah. Because everything's retracting back away from it. Yeah, it makes all the like classic vampire myths have long hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, oh, man. Yeah. Because it always grows. Yeah, because you've got to remember that, like, these people are looking for not... Like, because the body's still there, they're, so they're looking for signs of life. Mm. And, like, exactly. what more obvious thing? Um, and then, basically, you have a, a divergence here. Uh, basically, sometimes vampires were depicted, particularly uh, really olden-day vampires, as plump and, and ruddy-looking. And this was because corpses would swell as the decomposition gases accumulated in the torso um, and your skin would darken from, you know, the pooling of the blood and such. So basically when, when they unburied you to have a look at you or whatever, as they were doing, and they noticed, oh, hey, this person was quite skinny in real life, but now they're basically really plump. And oh, no, they've been eating. Looking. They've been eating. Um, otherwise, uh, if the coffin was really well sealed and, and buried in winter, that putrefaction process would be delayed by weeks or months, meaning that when it was unearthed the next season, it would still look alive. Oh, yeah. man. And I think, yeah, the probably the worst thing is that uh, oftentimes this dark liquid called purge fluid leaks out of your nose and your mouth as your internal organs break down, and it's very easy to interpret that fluid as blood and suspect... Oh, is it not? It's not blood. It... it Basically, like decomposed organs, kind of. It's not, ah. it's not just blood. Yeah, 
Yeah, but people would think it was just blood, and then think, oh, it's like spiced blood. Would be eating it. Yeah, that's it, spicy blood. So, um, and that purged blood would then also cause the burial shroud to like sag or tear, which creates the illusion that the corpse had been chewing it. Yucky. And then I think, uh, last but not least, very ill, very drunk people or people who are comatose or in shock were sometimes thought to be dead because of medical mm. diagnosis being fucking shitty. Oh, uh, yeah. And then later they either miraculously recovered from the dead or they weren't and they were buried. And then people would hear sounds from the coffin. When they opened it, they'd find fingernail marks on, on the underfloor. Scratching, screaming. Yeah. Um, isn't that like, I'm not sure if it's true, but the the etymology for dead a dead ringer being like, it is. Yeah, they'd bury these corpses because it couldn't, couldn't be sure if there hadn't been a medical mistake. They'd also attach a string inside the coffin to a bell above ground so that if somebody got buried buried alive accidentally, they could ring the bell and wake people up and get them to dig them up. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which is horrifying thought, but I guess kind of good. Uh, and then, like, you know, when you think of, like, you know, just coffins being uncovered somehow, or grave robbery has always been a thing, so often people would find disordered tombs and stuff, but really it was just someone else coming in trying to steal valuables. Um, I, and the other really big fear and thing that vampires have been linked to is disease, which also causes death. Because it was a really long time before people understood how diseases spread. Hashtag lost sewers episode. <laughs> yes. Vampires were often blamed when disease <coughs> ravaged communities. Um, and by trying to kill vampires or prevent them from feeding, it would make people feel like they had some sense of control over the disease. Oh, that's kind of sad. I know. Um, this is why vampire scares tend throughout history to coincide with plague outbreaks. Uh, because... Plagues like the bubonic plague and tuberculosis were often associated with lung tissue breakdown, which caused blood to appear at the lips oh. or bleeding mouth lesions. So again, always comes back to feeding from blood. Then you also have other little rare diseases that can cause um, those stereotypical little side effects or symptoms of, of being a vampire. Things like can't appear in the sun, uh, you hate garlic, blah, blah, blah. Porphyria is this blood disorder that causes severe blistering on your skin if you're exposed to sunlight, so you mm. have to stay indoors. And some of the symptoms of that disease can be relieved by ingesting blood. Rabies is a disease that causes biting. Oh, I love some of this stuff. Right? The rabies. Is yeah. Rabies parallels in vampires are great. Right, and it also causes general sensitivity that could lead to you being repulsed by light or garlic. Weird oh, things yeah. Like that. I get that, and because that lines up, because one of the main symptoms of rabies, I believe, is what isn't hydrophobia. Hydrophobia. So yes. Like that res- that like reluctance to be around things is like super symptomatic, super emblematic of rabies, rather. Yeah. So, um, specifically in in dogs, they will um be afraid of running water um as a symptom of rabies, and in fact, even they will refuse to drink water to the extent where if they try and drink it, every muscle around their jaw and neck will lock up uh, mm. and that's that's a symptom of the the virus because if it were to drink water that would dilute the the foam saliva around the the, the mouth which is the main, the main method of contagion yeah Horrendous. yeah i guess that explains why rabies develop lockjaw then huh huh yeah the more you know correct it's crazy stuff um 
Yeah, no, so essentially I crossed a couple of different topics um, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff about vampires out there, but as it turns out... I don't believe it. As it turns out... <laughs> um, what seems to happen is that a lot of vampire myth comes from... Because it comes from folklore or from... Or it's evolved so much and it's crossed so many different cultures because it's been so widespread... A lot of the myths surrounding vampires are impossible to trace back to a specific location, a specific place, a specific time. Um, yeah, it's hard to get. It's really hard to get more than kind of like a general region and an overview of the myth. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's an excellent book if you want to have a look at um, vampires and the the folklore around it um, by a guy called Paul Barber. It's uh, the book's called Vampires, Burial, and Death: Folklore and Reality. Um, Absolutely fantastic read, what I've seen of it. I use it uh, as a source for a lot of what I say here. Um, and he's responsible for debunking a lot of um, the myths around it. Um, for example, there um, there's a lot of connection between, supposedly, um, Vlad the Impaler and vampires. Yeah. Um, there's that urban legend that um, you know the, the peasants of Romania thought that Dra- um, Vlad Dracul was a vampire. As it turns out, that is absolutely untrue. Um, they never thought that he was a vampire. He was, and it, it actually galls some people from Romania that that's the only thing people know about their country. Wow. Um, he was, however, a <coughs> horrific torturer. Oh, a vicious tyrant, but not a vampire. Not thought to be a vampire at all. Um, but yeah, uh, so essentially, what it comes down to when we look at the modern <coughs> vampire myth, what we know of them, um, specifically how we're going to put it in the games. Um, so their strengths and weaknesses, uh, what they can do. It's mostly been codified by Bram Stoker. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula is where a lot of these rules turned from being urban legend and you know folklore and myth to having specifically been written as a thing. Um, I mean, Dracula's, Dracula, Dracula. Dracula's Dracula. arguably like the origin of the modern vampire. Oh, absolutely. I, I wouldn't even say arguably. I would say, um, with very few exceptions, most things that are most of the images we have of the modern vampire come directly from Dracula. Oh yeah, that's fair. Images of it specifically. I was just saying in terms of like the content of the myth, just because like a, a lot of it does kind of derive from from folklore the stuff. So it's yeah. hard to it's hard to pin to one thing specific. Point to one thing specifically. Um, aesthetically, yeah. Yeah, and as as a as a writer, props to Bram Stoker for writing just such a not so good character. Essentially, a lot of these rules were codified in Dracula, uh, so that Dracula could overcome the limitations. So the limitation that uh, a, a vampire has to return to the earth they were buried in, that was never codified anywhere. It was kind of assumed that they went back to their own graves. They had some some sort of connection with it. But nobody had ever said that they would die if they didn't go back to it until Dracula. And then that was only used so that Dracula could overcome it by shipping the earth it was buried in across the ocean. Wow, what a fucking spoiler. Um, I mean, vampires in, in Dracula were said to not be able to cross a body of water rather than just not liking it. They actually weren't able to. And so that was written so that Vlad Dracula could have himself shipped overseas. So he wasn't the one travelling, he was being taken. Um, just all Okay. <laughs> okay, Bram. He falls. When's he going to be a lawyer? Honestly. Uh, you, know, you know what? Fuck Bram Stoker. What a fucking... 
A terrible book. Fuck Francesca. Fuck Dracula. What a hack. I'm done. Um, I disagree. I think he's great because Tully described his character as not so good, and as a writer, that's the level that I aspire to be. That's fair. It's I'll know I made it when someone refers to my character as not so good. <laughs> and it sounds like not so good. Fuck. <gasps> Tully's secret anti-Bram Stoker agenda is finally finally coming to the surface. <gasps> um. Anyway, so. <laughs> I've been kind of dancing around this, but what I'm looking at now... Well, stop it, coward. So my question is, what causes a vampire's obsessive weaknesses? Um, so basically, what happens here is a lot of what a vampire can do and a lot of the weaknesses of a vampire can be attributed to links with illness or, um, like, physical things. So if you're looking at their aversion to garlic or they are, you know, not being able to state stayed through the heart or decapitated, um, if you're talking about their aversion to sunlight, they're all things that can be seen as physical symptoms from something. What I'm talking about more is their obsessive weaknesses, and specifically I'm going to go down, down to two of these, which is obsessive counting and that they must be invited in. Oh, yeah. Because I've I, I done a little bit of reading on the um, on the, the counting stuff, but I'd be really, really keen to see where like the, the house stuff comes from. Mm. That's always seemed so weird to me. So, um, having a look at the the introductions of these, um, it is really almost impossible to find the exact origins of these myths. So, um, the best I could find here is with obsessive counting, um, the first instance that I could see, and this is from Paul Barber, is poppy seeds. Initially, there was a myth that um, sleep and death were seen as brothers. Um, it was seen as a sibling relationship between sleep and death, because vampires were linked with death. If you put them to sleep, that was a way to get rid of them, because death couldn't conquer them, sleep could. So if you fed them poppy seeds, um, they would fall asleep. It does track, because typically when, I, when I'm faced with someone sleeping that I can't deal with, I do kill them. Exactly. And that works. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was seen if you put them to sleep, then they could no longer be a threat. So you would uh, feed them poppy seeds and they would fall asleep. That then evolved into a myth of if a vampire rises and finds poppy seeds, they have to count them before moving on. Um, and it was told that they were to count them at a rate of one per year. What? Who imposed that rule? I don't Who's know. Who's enforcing that? And n there doesn't seem to be any more detail than that. Um, supposedly this is a myth that did come from Romania, but even then it's disputed. How do you just say, no, sorry vampires, count, count all these seeds, and like, you manage to convince the vampires that, okay, yeah, you know what, that makes sense, we have to count seeds. Vampires do that, of course. Mm. How do you then fucking convince them... To do to, it only one per year. To count one a year. Um, and it gets even better because... Um, How's that conversation go? In, a, in addition, this evolved into a myth that vampires were to be buried with nets because they would untie the knots in the rope at a rate of one per year. Fucking <laughs> So... It's, it's a myth that doesn't seem to have an origin, but it's so pervasive. Like, um, cultural myths down to throwing uh, coins at them, to throwing a handful of sand, to tipping over rice, to... Fuck, and it's, it's so so pervasive that Count Von Count is a character on Sesame oh, Street. Oh, yeah! 
and it comes from so many. yeah, and it comes from exactly that myth that vampires are obsessed You're with counting. Uh, holy shit! Yeah. Um, so I'll get a little bit back to my theories on this. Um, the other one is that they must be invited in. Maybe it's just because vampires are really fucking bad at counting. Maybe, maybe. Maybe that's just how. That's just the quickest they can do. Someone just happened to have seen it and was like, "Hey guys, vampires are really fucking slow with numbers. Like, <laughs> they just don't know how those motherfuckers work." Oh god. Um, and so yeah, the other ones they, they must be invited in. So this one doesn't have a strict origin. Again, um, there doesn't seem to be a first instance of it. Um, this is one that kind of just popped up around the place, became part of public knowledge, um, with no real origin. So it's potentially thought to be uh, stemming from the late 19th century, early 20th century fear of the alien, fear of invaders and immigration. Um, And the idea is if a vagrant or if a traveller was to come into your town, that if you didn't let them into your house, that they couldn't do anything. Um, if you didn't invite them into your community, then they couldn't harm it because the community was there as a solid group. Uh, it was It's seen as very much a parallel to anti-immigration um, views. Okay. It was like a, like a metaphor for like the strength of a community. Exactly. Um, or potentially there's a little bit of um, biblical and religious uh, overtones as inviting sin into your life. Um, so okay. if, if somebody... <laughs> And if somebody's, you know, walking around the around your home at night, if you invite them in, you're inviting um, lust or greed or gluttony, or you're inviting this destruction into your home. I so it's this religious oh, overtones come in. Um, but one other theory on where it came from is Dracula, which is the first thing that Dracula says is, "Welcome to my house. Enter freely." Go safely and leave something of the happiness you bring. Hmm. That caught people really off guard because it's so old-fashioned, even for the late 19th century. Because this was 1897, I think it got released. Oh. Yeah, 1897. So that could explain why why the wording has to be so specific. Uh, yes, if, so not, if not being the origin of the, of the idea itself. It's thought that Bram Stoker wrote it like that to make... Dracula seem older, seem a little more of a relic of a, of a time past, but it was interpreted more as a contract of, I'm telling you now to come freely, go safely. Which makes sense yeah. at a time where society was viewed as predominantly a social contract. Yeah. Contractual um, agreements and stuff were kind of how things worked back then. And, oh yeah, as far as religious stuff, um, another theory is that it's linked somehow to the biblical plagues, um, specifically Moses, um, the last plague, well, um, the, the Jews, if they painted their door with lamb's blood, the last plague could not enter their house. Uh, and this is what, this is the one that killed the firstborn son of every Egyptian household. Oh, so a bad one. A very not bad a one. a good plague, as far as plagues go. As far as plagues go, it's no locusts. It's no, <laughs> it's no river to blood. It's, it's the death of your firstborn son. Yeah, at least like locusts I could eat. Um, so my I theory... My firstborn son, I guess. I yeah. should have. Um, so my theory is twofold. There could be two origins to this myth, um, or two ways to implement it in your vampires. Uh-huh. Um, which is the first is a psychological bent, and the second is a, de- a devilish bent. Okay. So I'm going to start with the psychological. This is personally my favourite, and this is what I'd love to implement my, myself. 
Um, one of the defining characteristics of vampires is their twisted obsessions, is the idea that anything that they desired becomes uh, an obsession, anything that they uh, were scared of becomes this overwhelming fear. Everything that they liked, disliked, feared, loved get, becomes a twisted version of that same thing. Because remember, these, these 18th century vampires aren't the undead, they're like the corrupted living. Exactly. They are still that person, just in a monstrous form. And so, potentially, a way that that could be read is, uh, in, in life, in original life, politeness could manifest itself in this obsession with manners, with being with social contract and social grace. Oh, uh, so okay. everyone must be invited in, contracts are binding. Um, this is very much a, a good way to introduce the fact that vampires are seen as a very lawful creature. Mm. Um, and... So if they were collectors of wealth, uh, if they were rich and obsessed with hoarding things, that would explain the obsessive counting. Um, was if they're yeah. give, given something, they need to know. Uh, if they otherwise, like the the poppy seeds and the rice, could be seen as if they were hungry in life. If they were a peasant, um, that could be an obsession with needing to know how much food they have with rationing. Um, oh yeah, okay. And. Here's where it gets... Here's where I think it could be implemented as such without making ridiculous vampires with stupid um, weaknesses. Um, vampires are seen as very intelligent. Um, but vampires have thralls. Part of the myth is if they, buy, if they suck your blood, you become a thrall to theirs. You're under their control. And it's not until that thrall drinks the vampire's blood that they become a vampire in their own. So it's thought that... the Thralls. Uh, this is this is my theory here. Um, vampires themselves don't suffer from the obsessions as hard and fast rules. It's sort of an internal feeling that they can govern with their own ideas and their own desires, and they can manage those obsessions in the same way that any person can. But Therapy. the thrall, yeah. But the thrall doesn't have that. The thrall is bound to somebody else's obsessions oh, as a okay. contract, and so they potentially can't reason with those obsessions. And so maybe it is the thralls that suffer all those symptoms of the obsession. They're the ones that literally can't enter a house until they're invited, that literally have to stop and count everything that's given to them. Um, if that's, that's sort of the lower intelli intelligence because they are bound to somebody else's obsession. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Um, just building off of that, just it, you reminded me of something, just kind of bolster that point. Mm. Um, it's probably worth noting, um, this is just something that I know because of my own, like, because of, like, uni and stuff, um, that contracts at this time weren't the way that they are now. It wasn't, like, an agreement where you sat down and worked out the terms. The way contracts worked in, um, English law, at the very least at this time, was, um, you would enter into a type of relationship. And that relationship would then be governed by the common law, by whatever the terms of that relationship were. So rather than entering into an individual contract for sale of goods, for instance, you enter into a relationship of buyer and seller and are governed by the obligations that govern buyers and sellers. Um, so that could explain, uh, especially if we were uh, either on, like, maybe because of, like, the obsessiveness or maybe as, like, part of their, like, uh, uh, the like curse of their ongoing humanity, like the relationship of host and guest, 
would be one that could very easily infer those things. Mm. And the relationship of master and thrall, the same. Like, the, like basically what I'm saying is, like, that completely lines up with um, 18th century contract law. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to run off that, here's my second theory. Also something that you can do. Um, so there's been a lot of parallels between vampires and giving in to temptation. It's the sexuality, the innate sexuality of um, blood drinking and the connotations of um, shameful activities happening at night. Um, now... This is where I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Dungeons and Dragons, but it does oh, actually fuck Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, but it does actually play into a lot of religious um, iconography as well. Devils are very lawful, and they're bound by deals. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know selling your soul at the crossroads, that sort of stuff. Um, specifically in Dungeons and Dragons lore, the arch devil Asmodeus, who is a, an Old Testament devil, but will I won't deal with that at this point. Um, Asmodeus sets the rules of the Nine Hells. Um, and these rules are almost arbitrary to Asmodeus's goals. They're designed more for his servants to fail so that they can't overthrow him. Um, <laughs> that is taken from an interview with Todd Kenrick and Mike Mills. So Todd Kenrick runs D&D Beyond, and Mike Mills is one of the current um, creative leads. Okay. Um, and basically they've said, yeah, um, Asmodeus makes contracts so that the other person breaks them accidentally and Asmodeus owns them. Um, huh. Yeah. And so where I'm going with this... Seems like an abusive process. I'd probably just go to get go to the court and get a say of proceedings. You know, just get that whole thing thrown out. <laughs> you can't enter into a contract to abuse someone like that. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and so also d- dealing with Goethe's Faust is the devil had to be invited in three times before he took Faust's soul. Oh, okay. Um, so, here it makes a lot more sense for them to have arbitrary rules regarding gifts and consent. You know, they have to exactly count everything that's been given to them. They have to be invited into a home um, and honour their words to the letter. So, if you take vampires as some of the other myths go, as literally being a devilish partnership, being an inhabitant inhabitation by the devil or a deal with the devil of um, eternal life at the the cost of uh, obeying a set of rules. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, the vampire, vampirism could be a, a deal that they've entered into, whether it be a, a deathbed plea or whether it's they've literally sold their soul, is you get eternal life at the cost of you have to drink blood to sustain yourself and you must obey these rules. Yeah, and I mean, given like the historic association of uh, demons and vampires, it wouldn't be it can, like because again, like a vampire is just something that eats your life force, and that we use a, sl- a, a specific Slavic word for. Mm. So yeah, that's really cool. And so yeah, it's it. The, those are sort of the two angles that I could see those symptoms making sense in. Is either yeah. psychological or devilish. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where I go with some of the hardest-to-reason uh, symptoms of vampirism. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Um, and does anyone else have anything that they would like to share with the class? No, sir. Well, in that case, we're going to go to morning tea. Yay! Tough shots.
And we're back in the studio. Um, we've just had a centuries-long chat about how we could uh, bring you a little bit of a hook to do with vampires. And um, one thing that came up is that vampires in um, the, the Forgotten Realms don't seem to have an origin story. They're just there, um, which is something that tends to happen. Vampires are just there. I don't think that makes particular sense. I think we need an origin story. Well, at the very least, it's not very fun. It's not very fun at all. So how can we make this more fun, Charlie? Well, there's a lot of iconography, as we've spoken about, uh, between contracts and between illness and vampirism. So why don't we bring a little bit of that together uh, and tell you the story of Lilith. Now, you see, Lilith isn't a mythological creature here. Lilith is a lady of the night. Lilith uh, works the streets in the evenings and um, is, at this point, very ill. She is dying of the consumption. Um, whether this is tuberculosis or some uh, disease of your making, that's up to you. But uh, one of the major symptoms is she is coughing up blood. Lots of it, too. Mm, it, is, it is quite horrible. Um, and seeking a way to escape certain death, um, Lilith comes across somebody at a crossroads who introduces themselves as an associate to Asmodeus. Who, who, who's Asmodeus, Tully? Asmodeus, ruler of the Nine Helms. Oh! So, uh, this associate of Asmodeus offers Lilith eternal life, offers her the ability to have her own, uh, to, have, to take back the life that she once had. Good thing there's probably not a catch, huh? Good thing there's probably not a catch indeed. All she need do is uh, live by the laws of the land and take back the blood that she keeps losing. Well, this sounds honestly too good to be true, doesn't it? So, Lilith foolishly accepts and wakes up the following day to discover that the sunlight burns her horribly, that uh, even the sight of water is horrific, is enough to make her curl up in pain. And when she goes out of an evening to, to do her bidding, she has a, a hunger for that very blood that she keeps losing. She, uh, Lilith is our first vampire. And yeah, that's just bloody vampires. Yeah, I um, thought the little origin story would be a bit fun. Um, cool way to give you your first vampire. Um, it is worth perhaps noting very briefly for anyone, any big old nerds at home that are saying, that's not how contracts work. It is in the 18th century. You didn't have to know what the contract said. You just had to know what type of contract it was. And if you didn't know what that meant, then fuck you, idiot. See also, warlock. Yeah, exactly. So, like, this kind of... So, so this tracks, basically. Historically, this yeah, tracks. this tracks historically and in the universe. Yeah, good fun. Yeah, nice short one, but a bit of an origin story so that you can have your very first vampire who can have uh, infected whoever you like, really. Yeah, do whatever you want with that. We get, give you that one for free. The others you have to pay for. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else that's used any other hook that has come from this podcast... Tweet. Our dogs will be around. <laughs> <laughs> the last five dollars. <laughs> an invoice in the mail. Yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, if you do want to use anything that we've said in the podcast for your own... Parish. Um, as, long, as long as it's for your own private games rather than for um, commercial use, please feel free to contact us. Let us know. We'd love to hear that you guys are bringing this stuff into your games. 
Yeah, and um, you don't have to ask first, you, and you also don't have to perish. Just do it. That's fine. Exactly. Um, but we'd love to, to hear or see what you've done. So if you could uh, get in contact on the socials, we are at Dungeon Deep Dive on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us uh, at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. Uh, that's if you are not of the social media generation, I suppose. Or of the social media generation and happen to have your email open right now. I mean, yeah, if you've got your email open right now... Email us immediately. Please. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's all for this week, unless you guys have any uh, closing remarks. Uh, just good luck, fuckers. Yeah. Try and survive another week. Do your best. Good luck, fuckers. Good luck. Ah, good luck. shows we watch say a lot about ourselves. Like how political dramas allow Kurt to escape from real-world politics. And how Jane's obsessed with identity themes in teen drama. (laughs) It can be tricky to work out why we love the things that we love, and that's why we started the podcast, Made You Look. Bothers me in superhero shows. Right. I don't know why. Each week we pick an episode of one of our favourite TV shows and force the (laughs) other person to watch it. Sometimes we actually manage to convince each other that these shows are great. I really appreciate that it could be super expository without being super expository. And sometimes we, mostly Jane, uh, pulls them to absolute pieces. Hey, you can't just hang a lantern on it and expect me not to notice that that's a dumb plot point to get you from A to B. It's always a pretty fun time. And sometimes we discover new things about ourselves, our friendship, or something about the media we consume. Oh, our friendship. Yeah. (laughs) Come find us. Made You Look is now available on the That's Not Canon podcast network. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 